David Bowie is now a soul singer. Welcome back to Fantastic Voyage, the David Bowie podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. We are coming at you today remotely. We didn't think we'd be back to how we started this podcast back in June of 2021. I believe it was June when we started. But here we are uh, in the fifth wave. What wave are we on now? I've lost count. Yeah, I've lost count too. We had a bit of a COVID scare, ran through a little bit of our families, but so we're just taking some extra precautions and doing this, this next episode, or the next two episodes, I should say, uh, remotely. Didn't want to be back doing this, but here it's we better are. Than no, better than no episode at all. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're, we're on to Young Americans, uh, the ninth studio album by David Bowie. Uh, released March 7th, 1975. And it's another step towards funk, towards R&B. He made a few of those strides, uh, particularly on songs like 1984 uh, is the one that really stands out on Diamond Dogs. But here we are. And he's he's transformed once again. Who can I be now? And it is a soul singer as outlined on at the end of the Cracked Actor documentary. He's doing plastic soul, as he likes to call it, which is, I've always kind of thought that was clever for him to call it plastic soul, because he, he kind of has criticized his whiteness before anyone else had the chance to. Right. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> genius. It's, it shows a little maybe self-consciousness, you know, that side of him a bit, but it is a good move to say what the critics may say before them. I think he was really self-conscious too in this period because I was just recently sent a link to the Sigma Kids documentary uh, by friend of the show Justin Waterman. He he sent me a link to this great documentary. And uh, I, have you watched that documentary at all? No, I have not. Oh, it, it's I'll have to send you a link. I'll, maybe we'll tweet the link out as well. I, I highly recommend it. And there's a a point in the documentary. Do you, do you know who the Sigma Kids are? They were like the kind of like the Apple Scruffs were to the Beatles. The for, Sigma for kids Bowie? Went to Bowie, yeah. Are they the they, ones they, that are they the ones that stood outside and like were cheered him on when he came out after I forget what yes. song it was. Was it Win maybe? Well, they were the ones. Yeah, I mean they, they were the ones that were camping outside right. of Sigma Studios. Hence the name Sigma Kids. And I guess when he had kind of completed at least like the Gauster portion of the album, or whenever he was finished with the Sigma portion of the record. He, he invited them into the studio for the last day to, hey, you know, like, I'll, I'll play you the songs. And he was apparently, he was very uncharacteristically uh, nervous. Like, he was kind of biting his nails. He was very timid because he was scared that the, the people that were there, the diehard fans, were not going to not like, gonna it. like it. You know, he's just, this is a, it's really different from definitely the Ziggy period. It's even different from Diamond Dogs. So it's a major risk, but... I guess apparently once they finished playing the album, there was a silence. It was kind of like an awkward, you know, pause. And then somebody screamed out, play it again, play it again. And he went, okay, great. They like it. And it kind of turned into a party, but okay. he is very self-conscious in this period. And there's some, there's some witnesses that can, that can attest to that. I can see why maybe another reason why he may have been biting his nails and fidgeting nervously, but he could have been biting his nails because he was hungry too. He weighed about, in the words of Carlos Alomar, 98 pounds. Soaking wet and holding a cinder block. <laughs> Speaking of Carlos Alomar, he's making his debut uh, on Bowie's recordings. Uh, yeah, Alomar is going to be one of the major, major players going forward uh, for the rest of this decade, uh, the 80s. And I'm not sure if he made any cameos later. I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but yeah, Carlos Alomar, uh, great uh, guitarist, uh, originally from Puerto Rico. He moved to New York and was a, uh, I think in his late teens or maybe early twenties, but er early in his career, he was part of like the, the house band at the Apollo theater in New York. Is pretty cool. So he he backed uh, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, uh, to name a few. But he became a session guitarist. I, I guess just for RCA. Uh, I'm not sure exactly who he's a session guitarist for. Maybe he was a free agent kind of thing. Was it the main ingredient that he was playing with at the time? Um, oh, the band, right? Yeah. 
Oh yeah, he may have been working on that too. But I know he was yeah. working as a session uh, guitarist because he was playing uh, on Lulu's version of "Take It In Right." That's where Bowie, they met, right? Yeah. Bowie wrote, uh, which turned into "Can You Hear Me" uh, for this album. But yeah, he said uh, they became friends. Uh, Alomar did. Uh, just he, I think he said like he he looked like Dracula, so he invited him over for food to his house and said like he fed him and <laughs> they kind of kicked it off. At uh, at Alomar's place, they would have had a lot to talk about too, because you know Bowie's obviously curious about what was it like to play with James Brown, and he played with Chuck Berry, and yeah, uh, the, oh, a few others Chuck, that you had yeah. mentioned. Yeah, and yeah. uh, I think those are the two uh, biggest feats that that really impressed Bowie, who of course grew up idolizing James Brown. Plus, he covered "Around and Around" by Chuck Berry and "Almost Grown," and yeah, you'd be hard pressed to find a young English rock musician who wasn't nuts about either of those two guys, right? And Alomar's wife, Robin Clark, is also uh, one of the backing vocalists on this album, along with a, uh, I guess, unknown at this point, uh, but he became a big R&B, I guess, star, but he was pretty, had a nice career for himself. That's Luther Vandross, who actually wrote, or co-wrote at least, one of the tracks on this album, which we'll get into when we get into it. And so some new faces in the rhythm section, Tony Newman and Herbie Flowers on drums and bass have been replaced respectively by Andy Newmark and Willie Weeks. Now, they're sort of like unsung heroes to me. Like these are two crucial additions to the studio, at least in my opinion. Um, So Newmark had recently drummed on the album Fresh by Sly and the Family Stone, which if you're familiar with it, you'll probably know it's considered a, a legendary album as far as drumming is concerned. In fact, uh, Brian Eno once cited Fresh as having heralded a shift in the history of recording where the rhythm instruments, particularly the bass and drums, suddenly became the most important instruments in the mix. And then the bass player is no slouch either. Uh, Willie Weeks played on, uh, he's on a couple tracks on Stevie Wonder's album, Inner Visions, uh, He's on a handful of tracks off of Aretha Franklin's Let Me In Your Life album. And maybe this isn't as as soulful, so it doesn't really help the the young Americans aspect too, too much. But he was touring with George Harrison at the time. I didn't know that. Yeah. And and George actually said uh, when asked about a potential Beatles reunion and with all due respect to Paul, that he actually prefers to have Willie Weeks playing bass for him. Okay. So uh, a glowing wow. endorsement, uh, even if it is. <laughs> they were still pissed at Paul, I guess. I was going to say it is probably still tainted with uh, some saltiness on George's part, but uh, a glowing endorsement nonetheless. There is another uh, bassist on this album as well. Um, and he plays on like half the songs. Uh, Amir Kassan, am I saying that right? He plays on the sessions with John Lennon, right? On the second side of the album. I think he also played, like I'm looking at it, like, cause the bass on Fascination is great. And I'm looking it up in Chris O'Leary's book and he plays on that as well. Oh, right. Is, cause that's yeah. another later edition. Yeah. So maybe the late, the second half of it. So maybe three out of, how many songs are on this album? Eight? Plays on, he plays on Win as well. Across the universe. Yeah. So I guess that, yeah, the later ones. Cause Win yeah, was the, a, late, a later yeah. edition too. Um, yeah, weeks was on up to right. So yeah, yeah, exactly. The second, the second half of the recordings, I guess the ones that didn't make the ghoster because the go like really half of the songs from the ghoster or half of the songs from this were originally going to be on, you know, they were from those sessions. I guess we can kind of talk about that a little bit now. Uh, the ghoster, there's some alternate takes from, or of some of these songs, like, uh, like right, uh, like um, young Americans. Uh, what else? What else makes both? Somebody up there likes me. I think. Yeah, it's kind of on there without the strings. Right. Al- it's, there's well, some alternate. Also, can you hear me without strings too? Yeah. And I kind of prefer that version a little bit. Maybe we'll save that for the side B episode. Yeah. Yeah. So the album peaked at number two in the UK, which breaks a, uh, a little mini streak he had. Um, of number ones as far as the album goes and peaked at number nine in the u.s mike garson is back earl slick is making his studio album debut uh coming over or sticking with bowie he was on david live and the the diamond dogs tour 
And another important uh, player on this one would be David Sanborn on saxophone. Yeah, so, you know, you, you can call this record Plastic Soul or whatever you want because of who the lead singer is, but this is a very, you know, authentic band. And, and while it's not necessarily a, a better band than, say, the Spiders from Mars, I mean, that's open to interpretation or opinion or whatever, but it's certainly a band that Bowie was only able to assemble given, like, his newfound fame and credibility. You know, Carlos Alomar refused to play in Bowie's band quite a few times until he was offered enough money, right? Like, DeFreeze yeah. was, lo was lowballing him with stuff like, Oh, 200 bucks or 250 bucks a week, which he scoffed at because he was already making like 800 a week when he was playing with the main ingredients. Right. You know, this is a little bit different from when David sent John Cambridge to Hull to get Ronson to play and they found him painting the lines on a rugby field, right? Yeah. <laughs> but this might not be like his most memorable or iconic lineup or anything like that. Uh, you know, like the Spiders from Mars had more of a name for themselves as a collective. But the crew we get on Young Americans are definitely the most seasoned and professional group of musicians he, he's worked with up until this point. Well, yeah, the 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 instruments on this, like the the band is tight. It's very tight. And the fact that they were just kind of thrown together uh, while he was on tour, you know, for the most part, mm -hmm. it, it speaks to just the the professionalism of this, of, of all the players involved, because, mm -hmm. yeah, they, they once again, I mean, the Spiders... Were kind of like that too but that was maybe lightning in the bottle this is definitely a lot of great musicians in the studio putting together great great music harry maslin is the producer for most of the tracks on this uh visconti's around too uh i think there's maybe a couple that maslin did on his own maybe the lennon ones that yeah the last two Visconti was kind of, kind of a little pissy about that, that he didn't get to work in the session with John Lennon. Uh, he went back to, he went back to England, right? To, to mix. Yeah. And then Bowie said, Oh, I've got two more. And I think that's why, who can I be now? And what would the other one be that got cut? Is it John? I'm only dancing again. again yeah. Cause that was supposed to be the first track on the album. I even think. Right. Or, yeah. Uh, What's the uh, other who, one? Who can I be now? And it's going to be me. It's going to be me. That's the yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. So he, uh, yeah, apparently uh, Bowie was like his time at the record plant uh, ran out. So in New York, he was, I don't know what they were doing. They were doing some, I guess, finishing up the album with Slick and whoever else. Uh, and on that part of the recordings and he phoned Maslin up to say, can you, you know, we ran out of time. Can you sort it out and get us, you know, we need an extra couple of days or something like that. And uh, could you also do me a favor and produce the rest of the album? And Maslin said he had had a few drinks and he just about threw up going, holy shit, like, uh, do you a favor? Like, uh, yes, I'll, I'll be there like right now kind of thing. Uh, but he said uh, that Bowie knew that he was kind of walking on eggshells around him and Lennon, but that they were very, very nice to him knowing like, okay, like this guy, this guy knows the company he's in and he's maybe not like, I, I don't know what else he'd produce up to this point. Definitely not Bowie and Lennon though. No, he was a little intimidated. I think he was, because he got John to do the, uh, the backwards note on fame. I right. was reading in. Yep. And John was kind of confused because he didn't know what he was doing. And, and he, he told him, well, this isn't how the Beatles did it. And, you know, he kind of went, well, how did the Beatles do it? And they, I, I don't know if they got into like an argument, but it was definitely like, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't want to, uh, I, I think it's just over in front of John. He kind of wanted to stick up for himself. You know, if he's going to be, yeah. be a bit of a smart ass, he kind of did it back to him type of thing. I, I think there was, there wasn't real animosity in the air or anything, but I thought that was kind of funny. No, I can picture the look that John would have given him with like a nostril flared and kind of joking, but it, you know, he had that humor. Should we get into yes. it? Yeah. All right. Let's do it. So the title track kicks off the album and the lead single, I believe this was before fame on the singles. Yes. It, chronology. I, yeah. Yeah. Cause it came out before the album. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah Cause he had been promoting it with uh, like on Dick Cavett. Yeah. What a, uh, what an intro to a, to an album. Great uh, little drum fill piano. Comes sliding down, saxophones, and it gets grooving right away, doesn't it? 
absolutely this is a it's got such a great groove to it and uh this was a song that i had uh, requested to be played at your wedding i don't know if you remember that or not i remember so what i remember uh is we ended up just it it was like half bowie songs by the for the last like two hours well yeah because the dj like was playing stuff that didn't like they don't even have the licensing for or whatever, but he was just yeah. like torrenting it on the spot. He was like, this family really likes Bowie and it seems to get people up. Well, first of all, he, he was quite comically inebriated. So that definitely helped, but it, it yeah. was a good thing because like you said, he didn't stick to the wedding script and play all those light. Like, you know, you always hear Moni Moni and old time rock and roll and you know, all, all the worst songs you've ever heard, but it became evident that he did not care about following the rules and was willing to go off script and just stream things off of Spotify. And yeah, I, I immediately had the idea to go and queue up some Bowie songs. And for some reason, this was the one that, I guess it really captured how I was feeling in the moment, you know, like it was a celebratory occasion. Obviously the theme of love was in the air and, you know, there's this big group of people gathered together on the dance floor and I don't know, something about that just screamed, this is a young Americans moment. You know, the energy in this room right now was, you know, it was just begging for young Americans to get played. And it went over quite well. You know, everybody was on the dance floor and, and joined in, you know, on the vocals. It was, it was almost like an uplifting goth, uh, gospel experience. You know, yeah, it, it, yeah. it felt appropriate given that this was a significant moment in time for, for everyone involved. Hopefully Sarah doesn't leave me for a slinky vagabond, but... <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it is kind of like a a love story. Uh, it's an interesting story that starts with you know a, a couple laying under the bridge in a car or something like that. I get like kind of fifties rock and roll music playing. You know, Eddie Cochran on the radio. You know, a picnic up at the Hollywood sign or whatever, <laughs> and it kind of takes a bit of a turn. Well, it, it lyrically, it doesn't really match the music, does it? It's, it's oh, certainly, God, no. That's, the, the, yeah, which is not uncommon for David Bowie, but yeah, it's, it's certainly the heftiest uh, from a lyrical standpoint on the whole album. It's not the most linear storyline. I'm similar to you. I don't have the full grasp on it, but I guess the way I look at it is it's almost like a prequel to I'm afraid of Americans. You know, <laughs> yeah, I like, guess. Because like, you know, some of the lines that stick out are like, you know, do you remember your president Nixon? Do you remember the bills you have to pay? Uh, we live for just these 20 years that we have to die for the 50 more. Would you carry a razor in case of depression? You know, a, a lot of these little lyrical diatribes, like I said, they don't make for the, maybe the most linear story, but what they appear to be saying is that the, like the American dream is superficial. Right. So, well, there, yeah. there's references to Barbie and, and Ford Mustangs. And, you know, these are all sort of art or artificial representations of wealth or, or one's well-being. I think he's also exposing society's uh, the the role that has been carved out for women too. Where uh, took you know she took his ring, took his baby. It took her no took him minutes, took her nowhere. In other words, <laughs> it took him minutes to you know uh, plant his seed. Uh, and you know she she would have taken anything. Like it's very like you know when you're 20 years old as a woman, th- there was this pressure on you. Like at a you know at a point in time where like you were a quote unquote old maid if you weren't married with kids and it, it you know very unfairly uh you'd be labeled that and it's he's exposing that once again he's breaking down you know the the faults in society well that's interesting too because i know he wanted to get norman rockwell to do the artwork for this album but he couldn't right. do it because because rockwell took too he was he was gonna take he said he's gonna take six months yeah yeah um, and, you know, and Rockwell was notorious for doing a lot of American style paintings, right? And he like he yep. did Rosie the Riveter and stuff like that. So yep. when you break that first, that's from the first verse, right? When you break that down, you think about what he was maybe trying to do with the cover. It might have been interesting to see how those two worlds could have collided. I think it would have made for a great, not that I don't like the cover that we got. I think it's fantastic. Maybe we'll save that for when we actually talk about the cover on the next episode. But yeah, I think that I, I can see what he was trying to tap into by knowing that fact so yeah very very you know he's he's very uh socially conscious yet again but in a subtle way i mean you're dancing to this and you're not thinking about women's rights but it's there right which is awesome that he was able to you know take some shots at yeah some dark aspects of (laughs) of our society uh you mentioned uh 
live for just these 20 years? Do we have to die for the 50 more? Ever since he died at 69, I always think about his death on that line now. Cause he, I always like, I've even thought like, do I have to die for the 49 more? <laughs> I don't know. It's just, oh, yeah. just something that, I've, that I do when I listen to it. Uh, you mentioned the groove. It's, it's very simple. Uh, the, the chord progression is just like a very simple kind of doo uh one, two, four, five. Very, very simple, but it just serves the song so well. The, well the... Think... Oh, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I think that the, the simple groove is, uh, it, it allows for that call and response to take over. Yeah. The the, the backing vocals. And that, that was a, a Luther Vandross or Vandross yeah. edition, which is, pretty amazing that Luther Vandross was able to get involved in this project because like you meant, he, he was kind of a nobody at this point, right? I think, well, not like a nobody, but you know, he was like a, a session singer or something, right? Like he right. wasn't a, a megastar. And there's a, another kind of a funny wedding story that was told in that Sigma kids documentary uh, from, from Carlos Alomar when he was hired by Bowie to work on this record. He, like you mentioned, he brought his wife, Robin, also because you know the prospect of recording in philadelphia was so fun and exciting and he wanted to share that with her but uh she was actually the one that asked well can we bring luther with us too because like they were really really good friends the three of them uh like luther was like their their closest pal and you know carlos was kind of saying well how can i say no to my best friend you know that we were as close as close could be and right it's kind of funny because the, the way in which carlos describes how close they were he says that he had to kick Luther out of his hotel room on him and Robin's wedding night. You know, he was kind of like, you know, like, hey, Luther, we love you. And we, we, you know, we always want to have you around, but you know, it's our wedding night. Uh, Gotta go. <laughs> now that's hilarious to me because there's an, there's another connection here to your wedding night. Yeah. Uh, I, I know the story. I think you're, <laughs> like, yeah. When the reception ended, you know, it's the end of the night, you know, everyone's gone home. The party's over. Uh, my girlfriend and I are in our, our hotel room, uh, the, the wedding party, or at least most of them, they had uh, hotel rooms booked at the, at the wedding venue. And uh, we were woken up by a knock at the door at like midnight or 1am or, you know, whenever it is when a, when a wedding's shutting down and uh, it was the best man from your wedding. And we go, well, what the hell is he doing here? I hope he's not expecting like a party or anything. You know, we're, we're exhausted. We want to go to bed. And then he tells us that he tried getting into your room, but there was no answer. And, and he's not alone. He had the inebriated DJ with him who he just found passed out outside of the venue with all his equipment kind of like sprawled out around him on the ground. And we were initially going to just deny them entry, but, you know, he mentioned wanting to try your room one more time. So we looked at each other and went, okay, you know, let's, let's sort of take one for the team here. Uh, and, and there was no spare bed. So he slept with us uh, between, oh my God. between us and, and, and the DJ just uh, collapsed on the floor. And uh, so what, what looked like it was the end of the night for us turned into a bit of a circus. Just, just the beginning. <laughs> yeah, the, the DJ kind of overstayed his welcome too. Like he, he, he stayed super late in the morning. He showered in our room and, and used all of our towels. Like, you know how at a hotel room, there's a lot of towels. There's like anywhere from like eight to a dozen he, he used all of them. Oh like he God. used like one for like his shins, <laughs> one for his, you know, I think my girlfriend had to dry herself with like a box of Kleenex or something when he finally <laughs> left the room. <laughs> oh, that's great. But yeah. So lots of fun uh, that night. And, and this song obviously is taking me back to, to that night. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this song was played live. Uh, I was looking it up in all the perfect moments. Uh, I mean, it was played live in, in 74 a few times, uh, supporting, I guess, the single release. But then again in 83, 87, and then on the Sound and Vision tour in like 90, when he was retiring all the, or a few of his his hits. And I, I was trying to think of a, a song better than this that was played less, because like it's such a great song that I was thinking, why didn't he keep this going forever? And I kind of couldn't. And the more I thought about it, all the other tours, it just wouldn't have suited this song whatsoever. He would have to have drastically rearranged it, which I'm sure he's capable of because he has done that. But I don't yeah, think it I mean, would have worked. Yeah, I just I think he just made such a good call to retire it well, when he did and to play it on those like the yes, like when you think of the visuals of the serious Moonlight tour, like, of course, this song works. Mm-hmm. Or, or in his, you know, he's he's dressed up kind of like the thin white Duke uh, on in the Sound and Vision tour, where he, you know, he looks like, you know, a, a guy singing this kind of song. Just works. 
Love the, uh, it's kind of subtle, but there's a key change. It goes from C to D after that breakdown with the, uh, do you remember your president? Does that do you remember? Yeah, I can hear it in my head. Yeah. Usually, a, yeah, a well-executed key change. Like it doesn't really matter if you notice it because it, it works great. It adds that extra kind of anxious, not anxious. It adds desperation to the end of a song kind of, but I love the way that it, it, it happens with a break in the middle. So you don't even notice it. But then when you, you know, if you're playing along or whatever, you go, Hey shit, like he just jumped up a key and it's, it's great. Did he switch back to the original key after that? Or did it? I don't did, think so. Yeah. Because I think it stays in D. I was going to say he, the, the bridge to the verse after that, like the, the last few bars of that part is really cool too. That's when the, is that the bass that kind of starts going? Yeah. Oh, I, I love that part. That's my favorite. It might be my favorite part of the song, that whole from the, do you remember Nixon to that part? It, it's a phenomenal, usually a key change can like, it can sometimes sound a little that awkward. Is where, that, that's where the key change starts. Oh, that's where, okay. Yeah. So that it, I was going to say that that seems like a very peculiar part of this. I, I almost feel like it was put there because it was changing. Yeah. It comes, it, it comes okay, back. So that comes back yeah. in D. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great, uh, great move. Great song. Great. Uh, one of the great album openers. I mean, this is. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great. I mean, this is the gold standard uh, for Bowie songs and yeah. album openers all around. So on to another great song. Uh, totally different uh, change of pace anyway. Possibly the most soul song he ever did. And that is Win. It was performed once. I have written down here. Uh at the final Philly Dogs uh, concert show, which is kind of neat. It was written. That makes sense. Yeah, it he, was a he late, wrote late it. edition, so yeah, it would he be. He wrote late it edition. maybe like the day or like a day or two before the last show or something, and they, they did it. Uh, I wasn't able to find it anywhere, of course. It's too bad. What a great song! Uh, starts off with uh, Alomar playing a kind of phased out guitar, and it just kind of keeps building. The song just keeps building into something bigger. Alomar actually said uh, that Bowie had a like an ear for song development where he didn't like many times when he'd be writing a song or he'd be recording a song with him. Uh, the song would sound completely different at the end of it than it does at the beginning. Like if you ever play this song on repeat, it's like you're you're here. Like, mm -hmm. Listeners can't see me, but yeah, you're up here. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you go back down and it's like you got to climb the mountain again. And this is a good example of that. Yeah, this just like Young Americans is a classic album opener. I think this is one of the classic kind of like track two come down songs, uh, which John Cusack famously mentions in the High Fidelity movie, right? You need to cool it off a notch after a, a killer track that has a lot of energy. And uh, I, I'm with you. I, I love this song. It, it's my favorite song on the entire album and probably in my David Bowie top 10. I, I like this song that much. Wow, top 10, hey? It's high. it's similar to like rock and roll suicide to me. Now, I think these two are kind of cut from the same cloth. Uh, in, in fact, uh, Bowie would apparently actually scream, "All you got to do is win!" during performances of rock and roll suicide on the Diamond Dogs tour. No, so they kind of had this in mind when he was doing that song. Uh, but I, I guess where the two differ is that in Win, while it has climactic qualities to it, it never quite explodes the same way Suicide does. It's a slow build. Yeah. The, the refrain would be like your source of excitement, but even that part of the song finds a way to remain gentle and lush, which to me just seems like it would be something extremely hard to achieve from a songwriting perspective to kind of create this gigantic burst of energy without ever coming, uh, coming off right. as aggressive. Yeah. And something I was looking forward to discussing with you actually was the chord structure and, and the time signatures, because to it me, changes. This, yeah. And to me, this isn't just one of his good hidden gem songs or like a great album filler track. Like, like I was saying, I, I think this is one of his all time great songs and should be heralded as such. So, you know, during the verses, we're in standard four, four time, right? It goes to a and, waltz, doesn't it? Well, For the, yeah, like, well, during the, the verses, there's a standoff between G major and F major with an A major posing an unresolved question rather than moving the song anywhere. That's in the words of Chris O'Leary, who, side note, phenomenal Bowie historian, which I think yeah. we, we yeah. gutted him out several times. 
Now, now some might argue that that holds the song back, right? You know, like, oh, it doesn't go anywhere. It's stagnant. It's boring. Is that not what he's looking for, though, on this? Well, right. And by oscillating between those two chords, it it keeps the song floating, right? And it preserves a certain mood, which I think is crucial. And it gives the song a bit of a mysterious quality, right? Like the unresolved question, I think, is the best description of this song I've ever read. And then we get a modulation to D major in the chorus. And that's when the time signature switches to a bit more of a waltz that that you were mentioning. It's we go from four four in the verses to two bars of six eight. Okay, so six in eight. Of course, six eight is very similar to three four, which is your standard waltz, uh, especially if you if you're good with fractions. But I, I think yeah. the difference between a six eight and a three four, if my theory serves me correctly, I think a six eight is kind of it's got more of like a picture like a pendulum swinging. Yeah, it's like a waltz that comes it swings a little bit more. It comes sweeping a, a bit more than a than the three four. It, it, they're very similar, and it's kind of confusing. But that's I, I was good at my understanding of it anyway. I'm good at simplified fractions, and I know that uh, <laughs> three is half of six, and four is half of eight. So they, right. they, they must be similar. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting though is that uh, so it, it's two bars of six eight, but then he closes the course out with one bar of two four, and then eventually the track ends on an E chord. The it ain't over, you know, that part. And that, that comes out of nowhere. And that part, you know what that part reminds me of is the ending of the song Buddha of Suburbia, where he Zane, Zane, Zane. It's like the same, he's singing in the same key. And it just, it always reminds me of that. But yeah, yeah, the two, four, that's, oh, that's interesting. I guess that's where it, it, it kind of comes crashing. The the ending of that refrain, it, it crashes. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, like stuff like chord structures and key change, you know, that, that, are, it usually isn't like my uh, my my field of expertise, but there's something about the structure of this song that just leads me to believe that it, it is another one of those kind of unmistakably David Bowie songs that, you know, only he would write this way and achieve this very peculiar sound. Like, to me, this is just like David Bowie all the way. Yeah. a testament to how technically sound the musicians are too right four 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 to six eight to two four you know like john cambridge i think when he was drumming on the what track was it on i think it was like savior machine or something on the man who sold the world he was struggling with just a simple waltz time the musicians here like i said these are the most seasoned group of musicians i'm sure they were able to catch on to these changes like nothing and yeah it sounds very seamless was this song about lazy people that's what i read but i couldn't really piece that together yeah i mean that's what i read him say but i've never really looked at it that way no me neither to to me it's much more of like a love song like i i think it encapsulates love but but in the sense that love is a complicated dynamic right like there there seems to be an acknowledgement of the good and the bad um the line that always sticks out to me is the opening one that me i hope that i'm crazy that's great i mean an opening line uh, he's going back to all the madmen yeah and for for a love song i mean that's a you know bowie was always you could never write a straightforward you know hey i love you song it always came with a, a great deal of complication but i think love is a complicated topic so the way that bowie tackles it especially in a song like this i think is just it's very very brilliant especially the way that it i mean to to me yeah the the lyrics are great but it's just the vocal the vocals on this song or or what really do it for me i think he recorded the vocals line by line which is very different for him so he'd record a line or he'd he'd record 
and he'd start at, the, at a line and he'd do a few, but then he would keep the first line that he sung on that take, which is kind of neat. There was a Philadelphia DJ, right? Uh, Ed Siaki. He came to the final. He, he told that story because he was in on the final session for win. And yeah, he, he compared that to, it was like watching a painter at work, he said. And I guess that's because I suppose if you're painting, there's really no going back, right? Every stroke is permanent. And right. so similar to, a, yeah, David was trying a second and third take of each line, but he always went back to the first one, which right. yeah. we, we've mentioned that a few times. Or Ken Scott said 95% of everything Bowie's saying is the first take. So yeah, that's, that's still in play here. Okay. Yeah, I, I love the vocal interplay on this song. I think it's absolutely stunning. Like b- between David and the backing singers, there, there's a great contrast in his super low delivery when he's singing that, you know, all you've got to do is win. And then the backing singers come in with their gentle, that's higher pitch. That's all you got to do. Yeah, oh, that's and, great. And they aren't overpowering like they would be on most soul tracks, right? Like say the last one on Young Americans, where they're doing your typical call and response kind of thing. And they dominate, you know, during most of the song, but on this track, the backing vocals are, are more so here to punctuate. And it gives you this great sense of like reassurance and, and really just everything about the way they communicate uh, with David to us, I think is, is, is beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful song. I don't know if I'd put it in my top 10, uh, but it would be, it's, it's up there. It, it's in consideration for, Oh gosh, I don't know. We'll we'll get to that in a, in a couple of years when we wrap things up. But it's it's a good song. I, I think I, you like it a bit more than me, though. Yeah, it's one of my favorite ever. And, and interestingly enough, he did uh, choose I, it on that iSelect compilation. That's, right. that's a, comp- a compilation he did with like iTunes or something to kind of yeah. highlight lesser known tracks that he was really proud of. And so I, I'm kind of proud of that too. And like, I really like a song and it, it, it's, it winds oh, up on it. liked it too. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it means I'm on to something. Cause there's a <laughs> lot of great, like uh, the sweet thing reprises on there and like, repetitions. Another one that I really like that's on there, but we'll get to that Yeah, a bit down the road. I, I think maybe this song hasn't reached classic Bowie status because, well, I mean, it's not a single for one, you know, it's an album cut on a record that people are generally a little more lukewarm on. Not that people hate young Americans, but it's not always held to the same standard as you know Ziggy or Lowe or Heroes or the bulk of his legendary 70s run. Yeah. But it's also, it's not a defining sound of his. Like, I, I know songs like Young Americans and Fame have achieved classic status, but this to me is arguably the most soulful song on the album. I think you said that too. And the most I guess soulful it, song I think he ever did. It's it's not really up tempo, so I can see why it maybe isn't a lot of people's favorites. Uh, you know, it's slow and doesn't quite explode the same way a track like Rock and Roll Suicide does, but it does explode in the chorus. You know, that wailing high pitch comes barreling in, and then it, it modulates that D chord. Uh, but that that do, even though it doesn't quite explode in the same way rock and roll suicide does when it goes to the course that still does constitute an explosion to me. It's just much more of a euphoric explosion. Yeah. It's a release as opposed to a, yeah, it's not a rock and roll explosion. It's a, yeah, it's more of a release. Like you said. So yeah, I think it's great. And Gail Ann Dorsey, uh, his bassist from like the outside tour and onwards. Yeah. uh, She said this was her favorite Bowie song. No, she was, she was bummed out that they never, like you said, it was played live that one time, one time at the end of the soul tour. She was kind of hoping that it it would get played live. And I think they were even rehearsing it during one of those tours, but it never, uh, unfortunately never came to fruition. I think I read that it was part of some sound checks even. So she maybe almost got her wish, but then it didn't happen. Yeah, It's too bad. You, You know, you mentioned that, and it's kind of along those lines too, if it's not a signature it's not a signature song and as young Americans isn't a signature sound of his, um, but it is a sound. And he said sometime in the nineties, uh, it was an interview. It might be the one where he's kind of laying back in bed and he's like looking up at the camera. It's a kind of neat shot. He talks about rearranging songs for, I guess it was the outside tour maybe, or around there. And he says, he looks back at his, his back catalog and he, he sees it like it's like a painter and this is his his catalog is his palette and he can pull colors from here and from there and and this maybe that defines young americans to a t maybe where yeah it's not his signature color but it's a color in his palette 
mm-hmm. that he that he added that you just don't get in careers where you have a nice little R&B album that was so authentic. You know, I, I know he calls it Plastic Soul. I think Paul McCartney said that in the mid 60s about a song that's plastic soul man they're doing i'm down yeah yeah that was what it was but yeah it just it's just yeah i i, I love that he made this album and it was the perfect kind of stepping stone between diamond dogs which had some elements and then you know what he gets into after this with station to station it's not it's not like uh it's not like the man who sold the world in between space oddity and right. Dory. Well, yeah, you, you can call it plastic. So you could even like, you could even say this is like a version of uh, appropriation. I mean, in some ways, I suppose it is. But then again, you know, so is rock and roll, right? Um, you know, t- to me, th- this album is is more of like a love letter or an appreciation letter to black soul music, the same way pinups was a love letter to British R&B. You know, what, once you study the history behind the making of this record, and even by just simply listening to it, it becomes apparent that there's a sincere affinity to soul music here. And David seems more so eager to put his spin on it than he is to, to hijack it. Yeah. And you know, this might be a good time to segue into the the next song, which is fascination. It started out as a Luther Vandross song uh, called funky music that he used to play. Uh, I guess they were opening up shows for Bowie on the diamond dogs tour. And uh, we'll play the clip here because it's, it's great. It's, it's almost the same. It's a incredible song that he actually recorded, I think, a year after Bowie did it uh, for his maybe his first solo album or something. But anyway, the song Funky Music gets changed to Fascination. It almost makes me think that maybe that's Bowie talking about himself a bit where he is fascinated with this music and this lifestyle and everything the being on tour in America, maybe the more popular uh is he's talking about a drug fix as opposed to trying to find a good song. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, I, yeah, that's kind of what I always thought about the change from funky music to fascination. Anyway, he was looking for an up-tempo song to record for the album because I guess he had done songs like write and win. And there's a lot of real ghoster. Yeah. The ghoster is a very slow moving uh, album. And he really liked the song that Vandross had written like, or it was a bit different, I guess, at the, at the time. And he said, can I, can I rework this song? And Vandross said, uh, I think he said, I'm, I'm living in an apartment where the elevator doesn't even work and I got to take the stairs and you're asking me if you can record one of my songs. Like, of course you can kind of thing. And, uh, you know, he reworked it and he, it's, it, it's, I, I like Bowie's version more. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite Bowie songs, uh, maybe similar to how you like win. I, I wouldn't put it in my top 10, but it's up there. It might be my favorite song on the album. What well, it's funny to me if this is your favorite on the album and mine is "Win" because you can tell which one of us plays guitar and which one of us smokes a lot of weed. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You know, you've always been a big uh, John Frusciante fan, right? I mean, this is definitely the most Red Hot Chili Peppers core song on the album. No, this or this Fame, is, but yeah, 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 this is definitely up there. Uh, yeah, the rhythm section on this and the guitar and the oh, and also like 
my favorite part about this song is the so the the wah pedal was originally in the 20s uh it was the intention was to add it to horns it wasn't for the guitar it was made for trumpets and saxophones and eventually it found guitarists and they thought oh this is great Mm -hmm. but that was the original intention was for was for horns and they use it on the horn uh with uh with sanborn he plays through and it's so funky sounding we'll have to play a clip Yeah, it, it gives it, uh, you know, guitarists use it for for funk and to get a lot of kind of movement out of their tone uh, or the rhythm playing uses it to kind of get uh, if you palm mute, you get like a very percussive sounding instrument. Uh, but to hear it executed so well in the, the way that it was originally intended is really, really neat, especially on a on a pop song or a, you know, R&B song. And not a jazz song, which is what it was, you know, it was designed for jazz players to get a kind of a swanky sound. Yeah. I've always loved that Luther Vandross story because, you know, to me, I think this song and that story kind of speaks to the spontaneity of this album because a lot of it was written in the studio and on the spot. And sometimes allegedly as fast as like 10 to 15 minutes, they'd come up with a song, which is pretty incredible. And I think once again, you know, this speaks to the importance of David having the appropriate people around him, you know, like you can maybe see why he sacked, sacks the spiders right like you know the musicians that he had in in 1972 were fantastic and i'm sure you know they could pick up on pretty much anything david told them to play but they're not going to co-write a song like this yeah from a creative perspective though yeah i mean they're they're a lot more limited you know mick ronson doesn't have a song in his back pocket called funky music you know just kicking around he's trying to memorize the notes of every jeff beck guitar solo or something right yeah exactly so, you know, we, we always mentioned that Bowie was great at surrounding himself in the studio with the appropriate people. And, you know, you might think to yourself, well, how important is that really? You know, these are David Bowie albums. You know, he's not in a band. He's a solo artist. But, you know, in so many ways, he is in a band. And especially on this album, you know, he's bouncing off of ideas to capture a sound, you know, that, that's so far removed from his own field of expertise. So, you know, it, it's good it's a very good thing that he's got these people with him and that he's working very closely with them because I don't think this album is anywhere near as good as it is. If he's, you know, just working with any random group of guys. Yeah. That kind of defines his career, to be honest. Like let's, let's think about it. His, yeah. His surrounding cast is a huge part of who he is. It's perfect. It just, it just works. And he recorded most of this album live with them, right? Like he was, uh, he didn't want to be removed yeah. Uh, from the, like he, he would sing as the band played in the same room as them, uh, not even in a vocal booth. Right. Well, and if there's any musicians or recording artists listening, like you'll know how tricky this is because the instruments will bleed into the singer's microphone when you're trying to, to do this. Right. I mean, the instruments are much louder than the human voice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. very easy for a mic to pick them up. And did you uh, hear the, the story, like Tony Visconti explained how he was able to kind of, negate that and how he was able to make it possible no i didn't read that oh it's it's fantastic uh so he was presented with the seemingly hopeless task of canceling the instruments out of bowie's mic right yeah so what he did was he gave bowie two mics to sing into he, he put one directly in front of his mouth and the other one was below his mouth across from his neck and the idea was if these mics are placed electronically out of phase the diaphragm of one mic is pushing when the other is pulling. Oh, and since cool. the, and since the band's sound is so loud, it's being picked up by the two mics, but it's so out of, or because it's out of phase, it gets canceled. Right. And since David is singing directly into the top mic, the one in front of his mouth, his voice survived the cancellation. He's doing it the analog way. I have an acoustic amp that you could also, you could do little gigs with. If you just plug in, you could plug in a mic and a guitar and the, because 
there's two things being picked up and going out of the same speaker, you ha you run into phase issues. So you press a button and it does that essentially, and and you get two clean sounds. So that's kind of neat that he did it before you could just you know press a button and a, and a chip, in a modern acoustic amp just does it for you. That's cool. He, he was a magician with mics. Uh, we'll get into how he recorded the the reverb in the room on Heroes. Uh, that's a oh, really yeah. cool story. But yeah, back to fascination, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. I, I would imagine that he sang this one live as well. It just, especially like the end, like where he's kind of just riffing, you yeah. know, he's, come on, come on, come on. Uh, you're saying fascination. It, oh, so good. He becomes the backing singer on this one. You know, yeah. the this could have been one of those examples. I think it, Visconti said 85% of the vocals were recorded live. Okay. Yeah. So, and I mean, I think that also speaks to why this is maybe a bit more of an authentic soul record than people give it credit for. I mean, he's, you know, he's literally doing this live with them. Like it's, you know, the energy is, it's all happening. It's all there. And it, and it, in this song, it, it really comes out on, I, I, I would have to imagine this is another one that was recorded live. At least it sounds like it was to me because it does sound like you were mentioning, like there's some kind of freestyling kind of going on. What Seems I would like do, what I would do to be, at a small club and Bowie gets on stage with this band and plays this song. Like, I don't think it could get better than that. Like in life, <laughs> like that would just mm -hmm. be pinnacle. Yeah. I would like to have been there when he was asking Luther for the song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fascination is a top 25 Bowie song for me. I'll say close to it. It's a little safer than what I said with top 10 with win. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think I'll stick to that because win, I think every time I do a David Bowie list of songs, it's always one of the first ones that comes to mind for me, but yeah. fascination. I mean, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if it's in my, it's definitely not in my top 25, but I definitely like the song though. Yeah. All right. So the final song on side a is right. Another simple one, uh, two chords. E to F, yeah. I think the whole time, uh, and the vocal melody kind of follows it. Alomar on guitar. I like that Alomar is very prominent in the mix. You know, uh, to me, he's adding some of the most tasteful contributions to the song. In particular, I like the way that his playing pairs with the congas. Right? It's a, it's a yeah yeah it's a gentle and kind of nice relaxing little vibe. I guess it would be Sanborn would be on the, the sax, right? Yeah, great, uh, great playing on this track. And I mean, so I, I love that it's there, but it's it's a bit more subdued in the mix, right? Like the guitar is towering over the sax in the mix, which I think is the right move given that this song is sort of like one big groove. It's kind of like one big vibe. You know, compare this song to say Young Americans where I don't want to say the saxophone was obnoxious, but the sax is kind of blaring in your ears almost to the point of like absurdity on that track. So I, I think dialing it back a bit here was the right call because, you know, this is the song on the album where you're supposed to just kick your feet up, right? You know, this, this is the cool song on the album where you kind of just kick back, relax, close your eyes, you know, snap your fingers and nod your head. It's kind yeah. of you know, what I, that's the vibe this song's on. This is like a, this is a red wine in the evening type, uh, album and this song is the perfect the epicenter of it in terms of the mood of this album i think it's kind of falls in between the the more upbeat ones and the super subdued ones it kind of just sits really nicely in the middle of the album and in the middle of the the overall vibe we say vibe a lot don't we it's a vibey record there's one for the bingo card that we will <laughs> make one day speaking yeah, of stay tuned Speaking of David Sanborn, he was just uh, with, he was on that Garson special. He played sax on Young Americans. That was kind of neat. He was, yeah. Yeah, that was really that cool. Was, that was a great rendition of Young That was the first song, right? Was it Young uh, Americans? I think it was Golden Years, wasn't it? Or no, it was Fame. And then Young Americans and Golden Years. I can't quite remember yeah. the, the running order. It was good. Did, Li did Live in Color do Young yeah. Americans? Yeah, then they did I'm Afraid of Americans right after. Oh, but maybe that's what put that in my brain. Yeah, that was cool. I said they were part one and part two kind of yeah um the best part of this is i mean we actually get a glimpse of it at the end of cracked actor where they're working out the vocal arrangement and apparently bowie wrote it all out and had like a dot system i'm you know we're gonna have to tweet this i found some cool pictures of bowie's handwritten 
vocal arrangement for this where he's just got all these dots and it's coded for hmm. okay luther you sing this ava robin you sing all these different parts and yeah I'll, I'll tweet that out we're we're on twitter at bowie podcast very uh very simple for those of you who don't follow us on twitter yet uh i'll i'll, I'll send that out because it's a really cool visual but it's just so cool how they're just like it's almost like they're barking at each other like one from here and one from there and it's back and forth and you put headphones on and listen to this and it's just awesome little song you know it's not the most like imaginative on the record um but it certainly serves its purpose right i mean it, it really seems like david was going for style over substance on this record anyway yeah uh, you know more than anything there, there's a vibe right we keep saying that he's after and then he brings that vibe to life pretty well on a track like right yeah it's uh and the you know the the backing vocals and that arrangement takes this from a song that's just like a, a really good groove it, it just kind of gives it that bowie flair that a song that has a really good groove sometimes just doesn't have and it doesn't put it over the top like this is this is a, a top-notch song in my opinion it's there's not much to really talk about with it it's kind of just it's, it's very like, repetitive and very it's a, simple it's a, right it's a it's a jam that is just great it's just i'm yeah. so yeah it's 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 a great song yeah, I'm, I'm very high on this side of the record. Uh, side A, Young Americans is right up there. Uh, it's it's high, even on the Bowie curve for me. I would say it's quite easily my favorite side on the record. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, me, uh, me too. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say it's like, it, it's, jeez. Oh, well, we'll save this. We'll save the rankings for a, a later date. But yeah, it's if anything holds this album back, it's well, it's not this side. That's for sure. Like if you were to extrapolate side A onto side B in terms of quality, this might be like a top five Bowie album for you. Is that kind of what you're yeah. getting at? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it would be. I think it would be a top five. Yeah. But I don't, but then again, I'm not sure if I would want another side of this. I, I, I don't know. I kind of like it the way it is. Yeah. Ju just in terms of quality was what you were getting right. at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but uh, yeah, I'm, it's, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. This album, it's so hard to place it. And I guess that's very, why we, I guess that's why we very. don't really have to, but it's one of those things where whenever I place it high, I'm going, Oh, but is it whenever I place it low, it's like, well, no, it can't be. Well, and, and not only is it a, oddball album a kind of a misfit child of bowie's catalog in terms of just the sound but even just i mean it's his least ambitious album to date you know in terms of like there's not an overarching theme or story about dystopia or some kind of a prophet or you know character you know th about this the is, music it's about the music on yeah this, th one. this is yeah. this is one that when i play it i mean i know we just talked about young americans is kind of a a hefty lyrical song but for the most part you know this record is one where you kind of just put it on and you don't really have to pay attention to it too much yes yeah. i don't when i play it yeah so yeah. it's hard to rank a bowie album that you're not really paying that close attention to because usually you're usually you are or at and least there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things about this album that make it weird or at least like on you normally you can if you choose to because the music usually does right carry it but this one maybe more so the music carries this album more so than the, the lyrics that, and that vibe that we're talking about that, yeah. that carries the album i think but it's a vibey it. it's a vibey vibe it's <laughs> the reason we've said that word 58 times <laughs> all right so that does it 
side A of Young Americans. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. Thanks for listening.